If you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, forging ahead in our, our series in 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, we've provided some Bibles for you. Uh, they're, they're on the, the aisle down at the center on the floor. Flag somebody down sitting down there and they'd be happy to pass one to you. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, consider that to be yours. Take it with you and we'd love for you to have it and to talk to you. We'd love to talk to you about anything you find there. If you have questions, um, that would be our pleasure. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, verses 6 to 16 this morning, and it's a passage about the Holy Spirit. It's not a passage about, about the mystery of the Trinity. You know, if you've been a Christian for any time at all, your mind has already been blown by something Christians talk about called the Trinity, that, the, that God himself is made up of three persons that are somehow still one. We're not going to be talking about the Trinity today. That's not where the passage goes. Rather, where it goes is on the Spirit the Holy Spirit, one part of the Trinity, and on what the Spirit does in us, and on why we need the Spirit so badly. came across this analogy this week. I wonder if this sounds familiar to you. This is from a book by a guy named Richard Loveless on um, the, spirit, just the spiritual life, the dynamics of the spiritual life. This is what he says about the Holy Spirit. He says, The typical relationship between believers and the Holy Spirit in today's church is too often like that between the husband and wife in a bad marriage. Here's what he means. They live under the same roof. The husband makes constant use of the wife's services, but he fails to communicate with her, recognize her presence, celebrate their relationship with her. Does that sound about right for the Holy Spirit in your life? I'm talking to you as believers now. Do you often think about him, about why you need him, about what he's doing for you and in you? If not, then what the New Testament tells us is that you're, you're using the Spirit. He is working in you if you trust in Jesus. But you're not aware of Him. You're not calling out for His presence. You're not sensitive to it. You're not finding joy and deeper faith in it. And in that sense, if that's you, you're missing out on a dimension of your spiritual life that could be of tremendous value and encouragement to you. Hopefully this passage today is going to help open your eyes a little bit to what's going on behind the scenes and help you to, to enjoy and to savor and to latch onto the work of the Spirit in your life. If you're not a believer this morning, I think there's also some really interesting insights for you into something you may have experienced. If you're not a believer and you're here, I'm guessing it's because you have at least some interest in Christianity, maybe even have been looking for a reason to commit to Christianity, studying its teachings, trying to understand what it is that Christians see, in the death of Jesus, you know, there's all this talk about the cross and, and about blood and about, and about uh, this, this sacrifice. And it could be that, that it just seems pretty bizarre to you, that maybe you understand, you think what they're saying, but you don't understand why Christians like it, why they talk about it and sing about it and pray about it. And if that's where you find yourself, then our passage, I think, is going to explain you to yourself and give you a new way to think about your journey towards Christianity, a new thing to pray for a new person to call out upon. This is a passage about the Spirit, and it's a passage about how the Spirit helps us to see Jesus' cross as beautiful. I want to read it for us, and then I'll set up a little bit more clearly how we're going to break it down this morning. If, uh, if you've got your Bibles turned to 1 Corinthians 2, if you found the passage, would you please stand with me now in honor of God's Word? I'm going to read verses 6 to 16. Yet among the mature, 
we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before our ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For for who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to I unpack this this morning in three steps. Three steps. I'm going to start with the crucial distinction. If you have your worship guide, these three steps are laid out for you in the worship guide. You can follow along there and take notes if you're interested. The crucial distinction. That's the first several verses, really verses 6 to verse 9. Then I want to talk about the transformational spirit. The Spirit being the thing that explains which side of this crucial distinction you find yourself on. And then finally, in the last point, I want to drive it in to us, given what Paul's concerns were. I want, to, I want to try to bridge that gap and take them here especially and talk about the new perspective that can be ours when we see our dependence on the Spirit and when we look at each other and at our relationship with God in light of the Spirit. Those are the three steps I want to take. First is the crucial distinction. And this is where we get, we get uh, plugged back into Paul's overarching point that he's making in the letter so far. He's writing to his friends who are all about distinctions. In fact, they had used different Christian teachers as a way to distinguish themselves from each other and to sort of, uh, to sort of appeal to a one-upmanship, you know, a, a way to, to identify or brand themselves as, as insiders, as those who get it. Because they like Paul better than they like Cephas. They would never be caught dead listening to Cephas, right? I'm a Paul guy. Or you're, I'm an Apollos guy. You guys who follow Paul or, or Cephas are, are so yesterday. You know, that's, that's so last decade. That's what they were doing. They were, they were branding themselves based on their attachment to one or another Christian thinker. Not because those, those, those teachers or thinkers were, were teaching different things about who God is or what Jesus taught or what he did. They didn't have real substantive things to line up with behind these teachers. It was a lot more about style or taste or preference. Think about the difference between a Mac user and a PC user, right? That's actually substantive. I should, that's probably a bad example. There's a substantive difference between them. But, but think about those commercials about Mac and PC, right? You remember those about, maybe about five years ago? They were, they, were, they were communicating an entire subculture association, an entire culture's stereotypes based on dress, patterns of speech, and which computer they used. It's brilliant. That's a lot closer to what was going on here. Or think, think differences between urban and suburban, right? The sort of stereotypes between folks who want to live in the urban areas or who live in the suburbs. 
Maybe there's also the same, similar difference between people who decide to drive minivans and people who decide to drive SUVs. I don't know. I'm not communicating any of those distinctions. But chances are there's probably a, the, the, something factors into the, to, to the differences between those two choices. And honestly, we, just, we use choices like this all the time to communicate something about what we value, what makes us different from other people. They're not really substantive. They're more about style, taste, preference. And that's what, communi- that's what, was, what Paul's communicating to, the, to his friends about. They were guilty of building up this sort of identity in their churches. And, and what Paul's doing is trying to knock their legs out from under them because what he's, what he's pointing out is that if, as, as far as you identify based on the style of the leader that you, that you like best, you are identifying with something other than Jesus. And the gospel doesn't factor in. And therefore, you are putting yourself much closer to the ways of the world, of the Corinthian powers that be, than you are to the, the message of Jesus and to the the engine that drives his church and its community. Now, what Paul brings into play here in verses 6 to 9 is almost like a recap of what he's been saying. He's reminding them that these distinctions among themselves don't matter. They're pointless. There's only one distinction that matters. And in that sense, there's only two classes that matter. There are those who love the cross of Jesus, who live from it, and there are those who reject the cross of Jesus. That's the point of these first three verses. Now, I want to I unpack that a little bit to help you see where I'm getting that out of these verses quickly before we move to the, to the real gist of the passage in verse 10. Verses 6 to 9 are two different comparisons. Let me show you where I mean, what I mean by that. Among the mature, there's one side of the first comparison. We do impart wisdom. Paul's been telling them, You shouldn't line up with the wisdom of men. We don't care about the wisdom of men. We care about the cross of God, which is foolishness to men. But, he's saying here, it is a kind of wisdom. And we do share wisdom among the mature. Mature here, I think, everyone that I read points to the mature as being a way of referring to all Christians. He's not here trying to set up tiers of Christians, like, like mature Christians and immature Christians. He does something like that later on in the letter. But here, that kind of pushes back against his whole point, which is that you're all the same. Stop trying to distinguish among yourselves. Mature are those who get it, who get the gospel and see why it's, why it's lovely. He, he is among the mature, among those who trust the gospel. We do impart a certain kind of wisdom. Here's the second part of the contrast. But it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. They don't like it. The powers that be never think it's a good idea. Same sort of contrast comes up next. We do impart a secret and a hidden wisdom. Not secret because... Because it's, it's hidden and only available to those who sort of work their way up the ladder. Think, uh, I don't know how much you guys know about, um, about Scientology, but that would, be, that would be one way of misreading this kind of verse, that it's not some sort of thing that you pay enough money to and go through enough steps to where all of a sudden they just open it up to you, you know, when you get to the right level. No, it's secret or hidden because it, it, the, the underlying word is mystery. It's not something anyone expected. The fact that God himself would come into this world and come into this world but even, even die was mind-blowing to anyone who was living at that time. Mind-blowing to the Jews because their, Messiah, their image of a Messiah was a conquering hero. Mind-blowing to the Greeks because why would a God shame himself like that? It's not what anyone was looking for. That's the point. It was mysterious. We impart a wisdom that is hidden and secret which God decreed beforehand. That's part of the contrast. Next half of the second contrast is in verse 8. None of the rulers of the age understood it. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. The irony is, they played right into God's plans, even though they, 
they thought they were putting an end to this guy. They were actually bringing bringing about all that God had planned from before the ages. Two contrasts. Those who get the cross, the mature, those who see the mystery and love it, those who reject the cross. What's going on in that? What's going on in that? It's, it's a lot more focus here on those who reject the cross. And what I want you to make sure you understand here before we move on is why they're rejecting it. It's something we've said before, but I want to, make, I want to say it again here just so it's clear. It's going to set up the rest of this passage. What they're rejecting is not the cross as, as sort of a logical fallacy, right? They're not rejecting it in the way that a math teacher would reject an answer of two plus two equals five, right? They're not rejecting it in the way a scientist would reject a theory that the earth is flat. They're not rejecting it in that sense. What they're rejecting, the sense in which they're rejecting it is that it doesn't taste right. It doesn't seem right. It's not plausible. It's not what they were looking for, what they want. That's what wisdom means. It's it's wisdom of the moment. That's why Paul talks about it in verse 6 as something that's passing away. It just doesn't last. Think about, think about the teased bangs, stonewashed shorts, and ostentatious colors of the 80s, right? Wisdom in its time, doomed to pass away. That's a lot more like what, what, what he means here. The wisdom of the world is always in flux. Tastes change. But there has never been a time where the message of the cross tasted good to the powers that be. Because what the message of the cross says is that all of us, even the powerful, are united together, level playing field, in the fact that we have nothing that we can offer to make up for what we have failed to be. And the message of the cross is that the only thing, that we are so far gone, so much worse than we thought we were, and the only thing that could save us is God himself dying in our place. Now if that isn't a self-emptying, message. I don't know what is. And that is not anything that has ever been, been looked for by those who love themselves, right? Especially the powerful. Their wisdom is self-serving. It's status-obsessed. It's passing away, and it will never see beauty in the cross. To this sort of wisdom, God's plan to save has always been mysterious and even ridiculous. It's not the kind of salvation plan that, that the trendsetters have ever wanted or looked for. And what Paul's telling them, what he's telling his, his, his friends, is that by dividing from each other and lining up with the style that they like best, they're looking a lot more like those who reject the cross who have never thought it was a good idea than they are looking like those who love the cross, who embrace it. He's challenging them. He's setting them up for where he's going to go to show them that, that their lifestyle is not looking good the signs are not good for how deeply they have connected with the message of Jesus. Now, here's the question, and this is going to get us into the gist of the passage. Here's the question. If the cross doesn't ever look good to those of us who are looking for ourselves, how does anyone ever come to love it? Paul says in, in verse 14, this is where he's sort of, the last couple of verses that, that we read, he's sort of summarizing everything he said. He says, The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand them. The natural person is all of us on our own. 
And a natural person never likes the cross when they first see it. So the question is, how does a person who doesn't love the cross, who's actually offended by it, who's put off by it, become a person who loves it, who sees God's plan to save and is drawn in by it? Wisdom, see, wisdom is a matter of perspective. It's not a matter of sheer logic and reason. It's a matter of taste, of desire. It's a matter of the heart. And how does a person who doesn't like the cross come to love it? That's the question we should be asking after we've seen him set up this distinction, the only one that matters. His answer is in verse 10. These things that no eye has seen, no one's been looking for this, that no ear has ever heard, that no, one, no heart has even imagined, no heart wants this. This thing that God has prepared for us, the Spirit has revealed to us. The only way a person comes from being put off by the cross to loving the cross is for the Spirit of God to reveal to them the beauty of the cross, to change what seems plausible and wise to them, to make them love it rather than hate it. And that's what's described in verses 10 to, to 16, the end of the chapter. One of God's greatest gifts to us is the gift of His Spirit that changes our hearts so that, so that what used to seem offensive to us now seems beautiful to us. Now, I want to unpack this. This is the main thing we want to talk about and come away with today, these next verses. I want to unpack it. I want to unpack it in two steps, okay? The transformational spirit that changes us so that we love the cross instead of hate the cross. I think, I think to really understand it, to grab hold of it, we need, to know, we need to know first what kind of knowledge we need. I'm going to drill deeper on something I've already been sort of hinting at. And then, and then we need to know how we come by that knowledge, how the Spirit gives us that kind of knowledge, what kind of knowledge we need and how the Spirit gives it to us. So first, what kind of knowledge we need. Coming to understand with, with our minds the teaching about Jesus' cross, about how God has planned to save sinners, that isn't the problem, right? I've already said that. I just want to say it again. Understanding how the theory works, so to speak, isn't the problem. To say that it isn't wise in the eyes of the world is to say that they don't like it, that we on our own don't like it. It doesn't sound plausible or something we should trust. That's the natural man of verse 14. It's all of us. So what we need is not help to understand it, to sort of read the simple message of the gospel and understand how it works. That, that part is okay. What we need is a taste of it. We need a sense of its sweetness. We need to be able to read it, understand it with the mind so that the heart is set on fire by it so that it appears beautiful and not offensive. And one of the thinkers that I've read that has helped me more than any other on understanding this need in myself and in others, helped me to, to sense it and to, to run after this kind of knowledge, is Jonathan Edwards, uh, a pastor in, in New England back in the 1700s. And there was a sermon that he preached in particular Pretty short sermon. It's a great read. Uh, I'd love to give it to you if you're interested. It's called A Divine and Supernatural Light. And the sermon's whole point was that if we're going to taste the cross of Jesus, the Spirit has got to give it to us. God has to speak this light into us. He has to or shine it into us and change our hearts so that we love what we hear. And he was preaching to people who knew their Bibles backwards and forwards. New England in the Puritan era was the most biblically literate society the world has ever seen. That is not an exaggeration. All of them knew their Bibles. They just didn't love what they saw because that's not a matter of reading and thinking. It's a matter of the heart. And Edwards told them in this sermon, for your hearts to want what you know, you need a different kind of knowledge, a new sense, a new taste. 
He has some great examples of how it works. One that I've mentioned before is, is honey. He says, it's one thing to know that honey is sweet because somebody told you about it. That maybe you've had other sweet things and they tell you by analogy honey is also sweet and you can kind of know that and trust their testimony. There's another thing to actually put a bite of honey in your mouth and to taste its sweetness. That's a different kind of knowledge. Another one of his examples is with beauty. You can know something's beautiful by hearsay and that's one kind of knowledge or you can actually see its beauty with your own eyes. So I know that Helen of Troy was beautiful because I've read Homer, right? It's the woman who's so hot, she inspired this nation-destroying war between these two mighty peoples. I know her beauty because I've read Homer. But then I know my wife's beauty in a totally different way. I see her with my eyes, and I know her in context, her, her character that brings to life her physical beauty. And that's a different kind of knowledge, right, than the knowledge of of Homer and Helen of Troy. That's what Edwards is going for. This, this knowledge of experience and taste that transforms what the head knows and awakens the heart. So one thing Paul, it's one thing to understand Paul's teaching that Jesus is God himself dying to take away the guilt of our sin and to free us from the power of death. That's the gospel. It's one thing to understand it. It's another thing to see it as true, to see it as for you, to see it as a solution to a problem that you have, not somebody else's problem but yours. It's another thing to see it as a medicine that heals your sickness. One of my my best teachers in graduate school was a woman who taught New Testament. She's a Jewish woman. And she knows the New Testament with her mind in an incredible way. She's genius, great teacher, great scholar, knows it better than most Christians who are alive today in one sense. But she doesn't believe it. She doesn't see it as for her. She's written a book about Jesus, kind of a biography of Jesus. But Jesus is not unlike George Washington to her. Obviously, she values him in a different way. She understands the importance of religion and, and she appreciates his teachings, but Jesus is not her savior. She doesn't see his, his teaching as beautiful, as for her, as true in a once and for all universal sense. And for the cross to be anything but foolish, a new taste, a new sense of the heart is necessary before it becomes off-putting, offensive, foolish, to life-giving wisdom. And that's precisely what Paul says the Spirit gives to us. The remaining verses unfold this process and why it works. We've talked about what kind of knowledge we need. I hope that's clear. Now, to drill deeper into these verses, we want to show how the Spirit gives us that knowledge, how that's what he does. That is one of his main jobs, one of the main reasons he's given to us as a gift, to help us to taste the beauty of the cross. I want you to see that in verses 10 to 12. These verses draw on something that was really familiar to Paul's readers. It was something that the Greeks used all the time uh, for, for how knowledge works. That, that this, this principle called like knows like. It's a category thing. That, that to know something, you have to belong to that category, have experienced the things that, that, are, that are part of that category. So that, let me take it from the abstract and the practical. Uh, horses have some sorts of knowledge, right? They're even intelligent in some ways. But they don't know what it is to be human because they're not human. They, don't, they lack the equipment, they lack the experience to know what it is to be human. 
Even among humans, we could talk about categories, right? For someone raised in Nashville, can't really know what it's like to be raised in Afghanistan. Men can't fully know what it is to be a woman, and vice versa, right? Humans can't know what it is to be God and see things from God's perspective, to see what's wise in the way God defines wisdom because they don't have the right equipment on their own. Their faculties are limited by their humanness and, and even within their humanness, they're limited by their sin so, so that, that our sins and the desires of our hearts color what we see and what seems right to us. We're messed up. Our equipment is inferior and it's defective. That's the problem. That's why we don't see things as God sees them. These verses suggest that the Spirit of God in the mystery of the Trinity knows all. The Spirit searches everything, verse 10 says, even the depths of God. He knows Him. And now we have received, Paul says, not a Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, who searches even the depths of God, who knows Him, like a man knows his own thoughts. We have received this Spirit, and here's the reason we've received Him. Verse 12, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom. Again, don't, it's not that these are special secret words or that they're irrational words. They're words that don't sound right to the priorities of, of humans. They're the words of the cross. The same thing Paul's been talking about this whole letter. Still talking about the cross here. We impart these in things that don't sound right to human wisdom, but we impart them by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who teaches us. And what he's talking about is that sense of the heart. The Spirit takes these words that don't sound right when we first hear them and he teaches them to us in a way that's spiritual and not just strictly intellectual. That's what he's talking about in verse 13. He interprets spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. He changes what we want so that we see and understand things from God's perspective, having his Spirit to guide us. Edwards is really helpful here too in, in that same sermon talks about how reason is, is important, like our ability to reason and think. It really matters. So we can't understand the message of the cross without it. Reason is, is, is important for, for reading things and for making some sense of them and drawing conclusions from them. But that, that there's a limit to what reason can do for us. Here's what he says. This is, I'm quoting from Edwards here. The perceiving of spiritual beauty and excellency, or hearing the message of the cross and loving it, in other words no more belongs to reason than it belongs to the sense of feeling to perceive colors or to the power of seeing to perceive the sweetness of food. It's out of reason's province to perceive the beauty or loveliness of anything. That's not what reason does. Reason measures whether or not it sounds like it adds up. Logical conclusions. Reason's work is to perceive truth, he says, and not excellency. Now, let me, let me make sure this is clear. What he's saying is that reason processes information, draws conclusions, weighs whether or not it all adds up logically. Reason can't tell you whether that thing is beautiful, whether it's good, whether it's worthy of trust. Reason can't give you a taste of it. And what he's saying is that it's because reason's just not the right sense. It'd be like trying to see colors by your taste buds or by your ears. You can't hear colors, right? The wrong sense. What we need is a new sense that is set up, that is useful for seeing beauty and excellency in the cross. And that is what the Spirit gives us.
That's why, that's why Jesus sent him. He takes what's natural, us, our tastes, our desires, and makes them spiritual. And the distinction shows up in how we feel about the cross. That's Paul's concern from the beginning and all through this passage. How do you feel about the cross? That's where the Spirit's work shows itself most. Now, I've got, by my clock, about five minutes to drive this in quickly. What changes in our perspective when we consider that we are dependent on the Spirit for whether or not the message about Jesus sounds good to us, for whether or not we find life in it? What does that change? I've got three things here. I want to really spend more time on two of them. Quickly, the first one, I think it changes how we view faith. Boy, there's a, there's a lot to unpack here. Sometimes we see our faith as simply the, a, a matter of reading about the truth of the gospel and mentally assenting to it, accepting it, especially when we're young. If you're raised as a Christian, that's, that's what your faith may look like early on. And sometimes when we view faith that way, we're, we're pretty condescending towards those who don't have faith. We look at people who don't believe and we're just like, how could they not get it? You know, how could they not see that Christianity makes so much more sense than all the other options that are out there? That's just not true, all right? In the way that any knowledge appears to us and to our minds and our hearts, Christianity doesn't make that much more sense in, than, than other explanations of the world. I think there are good reasons to be Christians, intellectual reasons. I don't think those intellectual reasons are enough to outweigh the way we really know things, which is not just with our minds, but with our hearts and our desires. And the heart is a powerful, knowledge-generating device. And, and with that device, Christianity itself doesn't stand out as head and shoulders above the other religions. What, the reason I bring that up is because I don't think there's any room for any of us to see our faith as some reason that for us to be better than those who don't own Christianity. There's no room for pride here, for condescension. We, to whatever extent you think the cross is beautiful, to that extent God's Spirit has changed what you love. And that is a reason to worship Him and to praise Him and to want that. For other people who don't have it, it is not a reason to look down on anybody. It is a reason to take the gospel to places where you don't think people are going to want to hear it. It's a reason to go to Central Asia and to proclaim the message of Jesus because what you know is that it isn't the power of their culture's influence on them, the power of their intellects latching on to the, to the principles of their own religions that's going to determine what happens. What happens when the gospel comes to them is determined by one thing and one thing only, whether or not God reveals these things to them by His Spirit. And He's powerful enough to do it. I don't care how dark the place where they live. So it motivates us and it emboldens us to, to take the gospel to places where it isn't known. It changes how we view faith in a lot of ways I'm not going to talk about. This truth changes also how we pursue God. Here I do want to part for just a couple minutes. There are huge implications in this passage for how we pursue God. Now, I think, I think the, the first order uh, implication here is that it has to do with conversion. This is how someone gets saved. It's when God's Spirit changes their heart so that they love the message of the gospel and aren't put off by it. But God's work to help us see things from a spiritual perspective, from his perspective, is not all at once. It goes on through our lives. It's a process we call sanctification, where we become more and more holy, more and more spiritual, see things and live things the way God would have us to. And through, for that process, the Spirit is the key. And that's how, that's, 
this truth that we've unpacked this morning should shape our prayer lives in some dramatic ways. Here's what I mean. If what it's going to take for us to be changed so that we are less in love with the things of the world and more in love with the things of God is for God's Spirit to change what we love, to present the message of Jesus and all of its beauty and to show us its beauty with the new sense. That was true for us to attach to Jesus in the first place and it remains true for us to continue to deepen our attachment to Him. And what this means is that we've got to pray that a first order of business for us as we pursue growth as Christians or as we fight to get out of ruts that we might be in as Christians, that what we need to inject into our prayer life is a prayer that the Spirit would help us to see the beauty of what's taught in the Scriptures. It's not a discipline problem. It might be, it might be partly a discipline problem, but it's never just a discipline problem if you feel stuck as a Christian. If you approach your Bible reading and your prayer as sort of the coins that you put into the slot machine to get what you need out of it, you will never benefit from them. What you need can only be claimed by faith, by empty-handed, fall down on your face, turn to the Spirit as the only one powerful enough, that kind of faith. What you need is to come to the Spirit asking that He will open the eyes of your heart as you read the Scriptures so that when you read them, you will love what you see there and you will respond with humility and with joy. This is what Paul prayed for his friends. One of my favorite biblical prayers to pray is Ephesians chapter 1. And the essence of that prayer, Paul prays that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened so that they would know what is the hope of their calling. He's praying for the Spirit to awaken new tastes in them, a new sense so that when they see the message of the cross, it is beautiful to them. That's what we should pray for ourselves and for each other. Finally, I, re- I don't have time to unpack this, but it would, be, it would be wrong of me not to point you back to the context for this section. What Paul's driving concern is, and how we need to be thinking in our own lives and in our own community especially, about the role of the Spirit and how we interact with each other. He summarizes, again, in the last few verses that we read together, what the Spirit does to change us. And he describes it in verse 16 as us now having the mind of Christ, a new perspective. The Spirit's work to bring alive the gospel, make it beautiful to us, replaces one set of lenses with another set of lenses so that now we view things with the mind of Christ, from Christ's perspective. And what we know about Christ's perspective is very clear. It's consistent all through the New Testament. And it's this. Christ's perspective is defined by the cross, by his desire to give himself for those who had no hope, by his desire to empty himself of what was his by right, to pour himself out so that others could be free. In other words, it's the same language that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 2. There he prays that they would have the same mind among themselves that was also in Christ Jesus. Same language, right? The mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is the mind that drove Jesus not to consider equality with God something to hold on to, but to give it away because, because we needed him to come to us and to empty himself out so that we could be healed. The mind of Christ is a mind or perspective that's shaped by the cross and that drives us to each other in the same way that Jesus came to us. Paul, what Paul says here, what he implies here rather and says in Philippians 2 is that we've got to consider others more important than ourselves. To look not to our interests but to those of others. To, here's, here's the way to put it in 1 Corinthians terms. 
to identify with each other, not against each other. Their problem was they were identifying against each other. I am of Apollos, and therefore I am not like you of Cephas. I am different and also better than you. And it was dividing their community. And what he's saying here is that when the Spirit changes what you love so that you love the gospel, it gives you the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is the mind that drove him to identify with us in our sin and in our sorrow, to come to us and join himself to us, to take on our flesh, and then to take on what we owed. And by identifying with us, raise us up. And the mind of Christ is one that sends us towards each other, to identify with the needs of each other and not against each other. That's what it would look like for this perspective to shape our community. And that's what we're going to pray for right now. Join me in prayer. Oh God, we know that we do not have the power in ourselves to taste of this spirit. It must be a gift or we won't have it at all. And so we ask of you, Father, that you would glorify yourself by changing what we love, by proving your power to transform even the hearts of sinners who want nothing to do with you. Would you change us so that we might be satisfied with what you offer us in Jesus? That's our question to you. That's our prayer of you. And we pray it with hope this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.